0: This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and this week we have a very special recording for you. I have a guest with me who also has a podcast and who is also a nurse. She's actually a nurse practitioner, Um, and her podcast is called Antidotes Podcast, and she tells stories but a little bit different, right, Christine? Your stories yes. are a little different. Hi. Yeah. So we like to tell stories that
1: are from our careers, the mm-hmm. interesting, sometimes funny, sometimes out there, a little bit crazy, other times just moving. Stories yeah. that kind of you er, have stuck with you in your career that have kind of changed the way that you've practiced medicine. So people just kind of come on and they like to share
0: what has made them the healthcare provider that they are. I love it. I love your podcast. I love the idea for it. And whenever I saw that you were going to start a podcast, I was so excited because the very reason that I started doing this podcast was that I love true crime and I love nursing and I couldn't find um, really good storytelling podcasts, not just true crime, but I just like stories. I love audio books. I love to read. And so I was looking for something like that, in particular, like for medical, the medical field. And I saw saw Sawbones, which I really love Sawbones. But other than that, I really couldn't find any. And so when you said you were going to start, I saw it like on a forum or something, and you said you were going to start a podcast. I was like, yes, please do. I want more. (laughs) Yeah, I love stories
1: too. And I think we were on the same forum because it was a podcast about storytelling. And I have always been asked, you know, at parties... What's your craziest story? Because I used to work in EMS. And when you work in emergency medicine, everyone's always asking you, What's your craziest thing? You know, what's the wildest thing you've seen or done? And mm-hmm. and I would always tell the stories. And then finally my boyfriend was like, You should probably make a podcast out of it. And I was like, oh. <laughs> well, first everyone said you should write them down and and write a book. And that's just way too much work. Little did mm-hmm. I know how much work podcasting was, I probably should just write a book instead. <laughs> but here we are
0: with podcasts. So I'm kind of in it. <laughs> I know I thought, I thought the same thing. I thought, well, if there's not one out there, I'll just make one. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't even think about it. I didn't e- even uh, in some of these forums, you know, there, there's people that are like, Oh, I'm going to start a podcast in like a year, or I've been preparing for a year to do this podcast. And I'm just like, i I don't know. I didn't do any of that stuff. I just kind of started recording it, which you can kind of tell if you listen to the first one. Oh,
1: oh, yeah. The sound quality. <laughs>
0: yeah, there's there's some recording errors.
1: Sometimes people are like, you seem like you're talking over someone. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't know how to split the tracks. And I really don't feel like going back and redoing it because I work full
0: time and I have a per diem job. And I just, I'm too tired. <laughs> Yeah. It's just going to have to be, it is we're just what it is. It <laughs> we'll learn from it. And next time we yeah. won't make those same mistakes. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah that's kind of how I am too. <laughs> well, I am so excited to have, to be able to do this episode with you. Me too. And so this episode, we're going to do just a traditional good nurse, bad nurse episode where we talk a little bit, tell, talk a little bit about a new story. I'm going to tell a bad physician story that a lot of true crime enthusiasts are going to be familiar with, but we'll do our take on it is uh, Jeffrey McDonald, the quote fatal vision um, case from the back in the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. He
1: sucks. He's uh, no good.
0: (laughs) And then um, you're going to tell the wonderful, amazing story of the first female general who happens to be a nurse. Yes.
1: Is that right? Did I say yeah. that right? <laughs> yeah. Brigadier General Anna Mae Hayes. She is a nurse. At, or, yeah, she is a nurse. Well, she passed away. But the first uh, general of any uniform service in the uh, United States. So she's a pretty Amazing. badass lady.
0: Of, of course she was a nurse. Of course she was yeah, a nurse. Yeah, of course she was a
1: nurse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I guess we'll get started with our news story. Oh, I forgot to say, after... So we're going to record this episode. And then we're going to do a special episode that we're going to dedicate specifically to workplace violence. And that is going to be on your actual podcast, Antidotes podcast. You're going to, that episode will be on there for people to get.
1: Yeah. So that's actually going to get released ahead of this episode. Mm -hmm. So if anyone is listening to this episode and you're like, man, I really want to get, you know, down and listen to a story about workplace violence, it's very important but it's really a t- it's going to be a tough episode. We haven't even recorded it and I know. Uh, head on over to mm-hmm. my podcast which is Antidote Stories in Medicine and you'll yes. be able to hear Tina and I talk about uh, my experiences with workplace violence and S- Tina's story which is uh, someone that she knows that had a pretty famous case of workplace violence. Yeah.
0: I don't know her directly um but I uh, sort of the way we are with nurses you know we're sort of um through a friend of a friend of a friend. Uh, but I, I know definitely know who she is. And I had heard this of the story, but it's Katie Blanchard. And, um, and it's a horrible, horrible story. But um, she just from what I've read and all of the interviews that I've seen her do, I know that she wants to get her story out there. So I'm excited for us to get to talk about that in that episode. So we'll do that next. But for now, we're going to talk about a news story that you and I found about um, the Gardasil... Uh, HPV vaccine. Yeah, there's been a lot of
1: Gardasil news uh, in the last week, which is really exciting. So tell them
0: what's going on. What's la- What's the latest with Gardasil?
1: So for anyone that doesn't know, Gardasil is the HPV human papillomavirus uh, vaccine, and it protects you from the most common strains of HPV that would cause cervical head, neck throat, and types of genital warts. And the CDC actually this year, not in the last week, but released a lot of data saying that the head, neck, and throat cancers are going to be surpassing uh, cervical cancer as the most common types of cancers caused by HPV. So HPV is also the most common STD that's around. Mm-hmm. And as a nurse practitioner that's working in internal medicine and adult you know, primary care, I... See people that are ages like twelve and above. So, I do a lot of talking about Gardasil because the age uh, limit, the age guidelines currently are around eleven and twelve, but you can be as early as nine for boys and girls. And the idea is that you want someone to have this vaccine before they're sexually active, before they have any risk of you know developing HPV. So, I do a lot of talking about this during the week. And some people are like, well, it's a STD. My kid's just not going to have sex. So they're mm-hmm. never going to get this. Sure. And you're like,
0: <laughs> nope. Yep. <laughs> That's not how the world works. <laughs> well, you know, you always think that your child is going to just be perfect and never going to make mistakes. But yet you know better because they're human beings.
1: <laughs> right. And, even if you're not making mistakes, even if you're using condoms 100 percent of the mm-hmm. time, you can have genital warts that are really small. You don't even know what they look like. That you might think that they're a pimple, and they're not protected by a condom. And maybe they're through, you know, oral intercourse, things like that. So it's so co- it's such a common disease because it's not protected the same way that we think of HIV and Hep C mm-hmm. and you know gonorrhea, chlamydia all those other ones. And another argument that I kind of run into when I'm talking about this with parents is especially for boys, they'll say, oh, well, he can't get cervical cancer. He doesn't need this. And I say, well, one, you don't want your son passing it on to women because they can get cervical cancer.
0: You would hope that that would
1: be- You would think that would be enough motivation. Unfortunately, they go, no, I don't really care about that. Um, That's a different discussion." But thankfully, the CDC released that new data talking about head neck and throat cancers. So I really drive home uh-huh. the um terribleness of having uh, oral pharyngeal cancer and how you can't eat. And <laughs> actually, they're very, very deadly. And I tell parents very frankly that these are not cancers that you want anyone to have. And the screening for them is much harder because, you know you can go to the dentist regularly, but we're not getting regular pap smears for them like you do for cervical cervical cancer and you can get them if you're male or female. And we have this huge increase in these cancers. So I've treated patients with these cancers. They're not pretty. Mm. You want to get your vaccines. So then the parents will go, Oh, Oh, this actually matters. And I'm like, yeah, let's vaccinate your kid. And so with all of that being said, the FDA just yesterday actually released a story saying that they have approved Gardasil to be given to people ages 27 to 45. So previously it was only approved for ages 9 to 21 for women and then up to age 26 for men who had sex with men or transgender patients. Mm -hmm. So now we can protect a lot more people. So it's really cool that we get more vaccines for more people.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, because you know we were talking about before that when we were kind of decided you know talking about whether they're going to do this story or not. Um, how up until this point, it was sort of really on the parents to because kids are going to just do whatever their parents tell them to for the most part. But yeah, beyond that age of like twenty one or whatever, you, and you you're kind of going to the doctor for yourself, and the, your parents not really there to intercede. Um, So this will give adults more of an opportunity to make a good informed decision instead of just letting their parents decide for them.
1: Well, yeah, and there are definitely times where I'm sitting there with a physical of a 16-year-old kid who is a young adult and they're thinking about this as we're having this discussion. The parent's going, no, absolutely not. You're not letting my kid have this vaccine. Mm. And I can see that that kid is sitting there going, oh, I want this. This I think this is important. And They can't speak up because either the parent doesn't let them or for whatever reason. And then they grow up and they've missed this mark. Or, you know, the kids didn't have a provider that pushed this or they weren't in a situation when they were younger to get it. Mm -hmm. Now maybe they can get it. And, of course, it's not as effective if they've already been having intercourse. But, you know, maybe they haven't at 27. You never know. And it's better than nothing. You know, it doesn't mean that they have already con- contracted uh, HPV strains that are high risk. So, getting the getting the vaccine at any age up to forty five will be great. Australia also just announced that they are on track to almost eliminate cervical cancer because of their wow. mandatory uh, vaccinations with Gardasil. Wow! Yeah, that's they, huge. That's it's incredible. They don't mess around with this anti-vaxxer nonsense. Mm-hmm. They have done a really wonderful job since 2007. And I was reading a CNN article, and I think they said by 2028 that it'll be rare. Less than four per 100,000 by 2028, which will be the like below the threshold. Of being a very rare or almost eliminated. That's wonderful.
0: You know, I I've recently started watching the show um, Call of Med Call of Midwife. Call. Of oh, Midwife. I love that show. Oh, I love it so much. But they 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 sort of deal with these diseases that were around at that time. Polio, for one, was yeah. around, and they they dealt with polio, and just to see. And I, it's a show, but it's still they were trying to I think they were trying to be um, as realistic as possible it seemed a lot of that show seems like it's very well re- researched um and yeah. I was I was just fascinated by the thought I thought, wow, <laughs> as prevalent as cancers are now, if you had a vaccine that would, would could stop any form of breast breast cancer, everybody would be going to get that and nobody would be saying, oh, that's just a hoax when when everybody goes to get, get it. And then all of a sudden the numbers of people having breast cancer drop and plummet and almost completely disappear. Right, And that's really what happened, you know, with those diseases, they all but disappeared. And now some of those diseases are making a comeback because people are going, Oh, on, you know, on second thought, I don't think I want to do that for my child, you know, because they don't understand it because they haven't seen they haven't seen polio. They haven't seen those diseases that they have to deal with. That that those people had to deal with.
1: It's a it's a privilege of a developed nation that doesn't have these public health crises right. to go. Oh, I don't think I need this, or the vaccines are causing these mm-hmm. issues, and. The whole anti-vaxxer thing is a is a whole nother podcast, yeah. but I saw uh, recently on Facebook, and you should always get your medical information from Facebook, yeah. right? That this <laughs> there's this uh, photo of actually Elvis getting the polio vaccine, and it said that uh, Elvis getting the polio vaccine on television was a huge impact on public health because vaccine rates increased dramatically i don't remember what the numbers were but it it showed people that oh you should get vaccinated because elvis is doing it and they they went up really significantly so i i don't know how true that is i would i saw it on facebook but i hope it's true that would be really cool way to go my grandmother loves elvis so that and i love immunology so you know good for him (laughs) thanks
0: funny well, okay, I guess we're ready. That was our in the news story. And I guess we're ready to move on to the don 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 the bad story for this week. It is, like I said earlier, Jeffrey McDonald. For those of you who don't know, he was um, a surgeon in the Army. And I'll go back and tell you a little bit um, about him, kind of his uh, origins He was the middle child, of course. I don't know how many of you are middle children, but, you know, they're always bad news. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Um, uh, But he was the middle child of Robert McDonald. Uh, They called him Mac and Dorothy. Those were his parents. He he was raised on Long Island and attended Patrick U High School, probably mispronouncing that, where he he was voted both most popular and most likely to succeed. And he was senior class president and captain of the football team, so it just sounded like it's. I know (laughs) (laughs) he peaked too early. I think was Uh his problem. But um, yeah, for all of you that are not
1: homecoming homecoming king, just remember the remember the story, and you'll
0: feel a whole lot better. Um, He he got a scholarship (laughs) to Princeton University. He when once he got to um, college, he started dating Colette Stevenson she was also his high school sweetheart. So I guess they sort of rekindled that relationship. And then they got married in September of 1963, after they learned that she was pregnant with his child. That baby was a daughter. Um, Her name was Kimberly. She was born in April of 1964. Then after going to Princeton for three years, they moved to Chicago and he started going to Northwestern University Medical School. And they had a second child, Kristen, and she was born in In May of 1967. So then um, he graduated from medical school, completed an internship at the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York, and then he joined the Army in 1969. And he and his family moved to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where he held the rank of captain. And he was assigned to the 6th Special Forces Group as a group surgeon in September of 1969. So that's kind of a little bit of background of him and his his family. So at three forty two a.m. on February seventeenth, nineteen seventy, dispatchers at Fort Bragg received an emergency phone call from McDonald, who reported a stabbing. So the military police officers arrived at the house, and this is on post on Fort yes. Bragg, and not Fayetteville. Well, what what are the quarters? What do they refer to them? Um, so there is like the barracks that are like the. But if you are. Would be but like if you're, like, like upper... Apartments. But if you're married,
1: you would have um, a house off. You would have a house, like, on okay. base. There's, like, little neighborhoods. So he probably had, as an officer, he probably had a, you know, a, a house. Or like yeah. A I think
0: thing. they said something like in one of the officer quarters or something like that. Like, it was... Yeah. I don't know.
1: My boyfriend actually was in third special forces group, which is that unit oh. now on Ooh,
0: Fort Bragg. Okay. <laughs> kind of spooky. Brock. So... He's like, yeah, we know all about the Fort I Braggers. <laughs> so they get there, and... Of course, they they at first they thought they were coming to settle a domestic disturbance. And when they got there, the front door was closed and locked and the house was dark. So when no one answered the door, they circled around to the back of the house and they found the back screen door closed and unlocked and the back door wide open. So they go in and they find Jeffrey's wife, Colette, and his daughters, Kimberly and Kristen, dead and they're each in their own bedrooms. Five-year-old Kimberly was found in her bed. Um, she had been beaten in the head and stabbed in the neck. With a knife between eight and ten times, and mm. two-year-old Kristen was found. Ugh, cannot even. Um, I think sometimes when I am reading these stories, I block out some of the stuff because as I tr- as I'm actually saying them, as the words are coming out of my mouth, I don't really have any choice to skip over it, and it it's just so yeah. unsettling. But um, so she, the two-year-old, was found in her own bed. And she had been stabbed 33 times with a knife and 15 times with an ice pick. Colette, who was pregnant with her third child and first son, was lying on the floor Mm -hmm. of her bedroom. She had been repeatedly beaten. Both of her arms were broken. And she had been stabbed 21 times with an ice pick and 16 times with a knife. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey McDonald's torn pajama top was draped upon her chest. And on the headboard of her bed, the word pig was written in blood. I can remember this movie so vividly, watching this movie.
1: You know, I actually haven't seen the movie. I really need to. Oh,
0: I watched it a long time ago, and it's disturbing. So, Jeffrey McDonald was found next to his wife... And he was alive, but he was wounded. His wounds were not as severe nor as numerous as those that his family had suffered. He was immediately taken to the hospital, Womack Hospital, and he had some cuts and bruises on his face and chest, and he had a mild concussion. He also had a stab wound on his left torso that another surgeon described as a clean, small, sharp incision that caused his left lung to partially collapse. And then he was released from the hospital after one week. So he did have some extensive injuries. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't have spent a week in the hospital. Also,
1: it was the 70s. I mean, a week in the hospital isn't the same as a week in the hospital now.
0: That's true. Because back then, they would keep you in the hospital for a (laughs) stop-toe for a couple of days. But it's certainly not like that anymore. So according to Jeffrey McDonald, this is what he says happened. Um, He told investigators that, that that evening, he had fallen asleep on the living room couch because Kristen had been in the bed with Colette and wet his side of the bed. And then he was l- later on in the evening, he was woke up by Colette and Kimberly's screams. So he got up from the couch to go help him. And when he got up, he was attacked by three male intruders, one black and two white. This is, all, this is his story. And then a fourth intruder he described as a white female with long blonde hair and that she was wearing high heel boots and a white floppy hat partially covering her face. He said that she stood kind of nearby and was holding a candle, a lighted candle, and that she was chanting, Acid is groovy, kill the mm. pigs. So the three males attacked him with a, a club and then ice pick, is, is what he said. And he said during the struggle, his pajama top was pulled over his head to his wrist. So he. And and if you can just imagine this, I honestly had a hard time imagining this making sense. But this is what he said. The, pa- the pajama top got pulled over his head and then he was, it was kind of like wrapped around his wrist and he was using it to ward off the attack. So like to keep the knife from actually getting to him. He's using his pajama top that way. So so Does I think that make he any sense? it
1: came down to his, his wrists and maybe he was like tangling their arms up with the pajama top and maybe deflecting a little bit with it like outstretched in front of him like kind of rolled up a bit
0: yeah maybe so pause
1: quickly he is in sixth special forces group is he actually a green Mm -hmm. i i remember hearing that he is actually a green beret and not a support guy is that correct he's because special forces units have special forces soldiers and then also green berets that so I'm sorry, they have Green Berets, the Special Forces soldiers, and then they have support soldiers who are not Special Forces
0: trained. That's hard because with him, being, him going to university for three years and then going to medical school, it'd be hard for me to believe that he was also trained as a Green Beret. But maybe in addition to all of that, he yeah. was... What do you so think? I mean, there I definitely know.
1: are special forces physicians assistants. There definitely are special forces mm-hmm. physicians. There, okay. I, from what I remember of this story, I think he was a Green Beret, which means he went. Oh, he would have gone through like, years of training in combat and close combat and other things. Mm-hmm. If he was actually an
0: SF guy, and probably. So you're thinking he should have been able to protect himself better he and- should have been able to kick the asses of a bunch of little
1: hippies is my my theory here based on yeah. his story mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now if he is just like an I- attached surgeon to the unit no i mean you know maybe not.
0: I didn't I didn't really I don't remember when I was reading the di- cuz I I read several different accounts of this story and listened to another podcast that tells this story and I don't remember hearing that but I don't know. I don't remember anybody focusing in on that. It could be. I also know that later on there there is a suspect who is also military or ex-military or something so maybe that person if these maybe if these two other guys are are military or or somehow, you know, maybe they were big guys. I don't know. I guess I'm just, just trying to play devil's advocate, possibly. If they're two big guys, maybe. Or wait, there were three of them. There were three. I don't know. I guess if, they, if there were two or three big guys... One of which is military, it, giving him the benefit of the doubt. Trying to, it's kind of hard with the story. But if there were three guys in that general in that general area, likely all likelihood is that they are either military or ex-military, right? Cause maybe they also got
1: on post, and mm-hmm. somehow they got on post. Maybe they were someone signed them in. Gate security is usually pretty strict, and this is around Vietnam, so I'm sure they were not just letting people on all willy nilly. And I'm I'm mm-hmm. being very judgy, obviously with Jeffrey McDonald, because we kind of know where the story is going, and we've all heard this before.
0: <laughs> I don't think anybody would blame. I'm you not for that trying at all. to be
1: like he should have done better to protect his family. That's not usually how <laughs> I would talk about victims of horrible crimes or any service member and what their their skills are, especially if they're also a surgeon. Mm-hmm. But um, this guy, I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna be a yeah. little bit
0: critical of and his. Ownership. Yeah, you can be rough <laughs> on him. So he says eventually that he was overcome by his assailants and he was knocked unconscious in the living room end of the hallway leading to the bedrooms. So he was actually knocked unconscious, according to his story. And then he does. I guess he doesn't. He doesn't know how he ended up in the bed. Maybe. So the army did obviously did an investigation. And for people like me who are have no connection whatsoever to the military this is very i mean i've seen tv shows <laughs> but and movies but other than that and so it's always so interesting to me the idea of there being an entire criminal investigation that's just done by the army and that they kind of police their own you know that oh, sort yeah, of you thing. don't mess
1: around with but
0: um ucmj yeah so
1: I, I was a in the army
0: as a reservist like
1: so pretend army kind of i was pretend and you don't mess around with a uniform code of military justice like they have their own rules there's laws are a little bit different punishments are different and you can be tried twice for things du- double jeopardy exists as in the army can try you but then also the civilian world can try you so it's mm-hmm. they they can be pretty intense
0: yeah and it sounds like th- any they did That did an investigation. And at first, the Criminal Investigation Division did not believe his version of the events. And so they didn't feel like it supported his story, all of the evidence. The living room where he supposedly fought for his life against three armed assailants showed few signs of struggle apart from an overturned coffee table and an october flower plant mm-hmm. there was really not any damage to the inside of the house uh there were fibers from his torn pajama they weren't there weren't any in the living room where supposedly he was stabbed and the, the fight took place but yet there were fibers from the pajamas underneath colette's body which that's how suspicious that? that's suspicious and also there were uh fibers from his Pajamas in both Kimberly and Kristen's bedrooms. One fiber was found under Kristen's fingernail.
1: But not where, but not at all where he was using his pajama top as like
0: a shield. Exactly. Yeah. It's so it just, uh, the murder weapons were found outside the back door, all in one place. So it's like, you know, if you're just trying to think about how these four people, the three men and the two, oh, three men and the woman, would have acted. If all, with all of them with their weapons um you know one with a piece of lumber and one with a ice pick and one with a knife and that they would all like run out the back door and all pile them in the same place outside the door do you know what yeah. I'm saying like you you would if you think if they're like all running out the back door and all of them, Happened to have the idea to drop the weapons at the exact same time, they at least probably wouldn't put them all at the same place. It would probably all just be flung, you right. know, flung. They're not like, oh, here let's all collect
1: them here, guys, and turn them in at the back yeah. door before we go. let's
0: all pile them here neatly. <laughs> right. So, some things like that that just didn't make sense. Um, the tips of there were tips of surgical gloves were found underneath the headboard where the, you know, pig was written on the, on the, in blood mm-hmm. on the headboard. Um, those, so-, so they were. And they had the blood on them, you know, because so it was like somebody had used those surgical gloves to write the word pig in blood on the headboard. Those types of gloves were kept in the kitchen, right? Like he kept a set of gloves like that, like a box mm-hmm. of gloves in the kitchen, just exactly like those gloves that were the tips where, you know, they, so the the assailants would have must have gone into his kitchen and got those surgical gloves out of his personal stash of of gloves and use that to write pig on mm-hmm. the, you know, just, just doesn't quite add no. up. The whole family, which is, this is kind of a, a statistical anomaly. Uh, they all had different blood types. That's so isn't that weird? So because of that, they kind of were able to, investigators were able to sort of put together their theory of what happened in the house and so starting out with the assumption that there were only four people that were, that were bleeding, they theorized that a fight began in the master bedroom between Jeffrey McDonald and Colette, who they, maybe they, were, they think they were possibly arguing arguing over. You know, there's always a vein of truth in, all, in everybody's, you know, whenever somebody's telling a lie. So they figure, you know, she did, Kristen did wet the bed. Maybe they, it started an argument and they speculate that that it turned physical. Maybe she hit him first. And then he hit her, maybe with his fist, and then with a piece of lumber. Although at this point, I'm going, where, who in the middle of a heated dis- argument with your wife, and if it turns into a fist fight, where do you get a piece of lumber? In I don't Facebook. know. But <laughs> I know. It's just that part of their, you know how sometimes the prosecutors or the investigators, like they want to come up with a story because they feel like it just leans They feel like they need to explain what could have possibly happened. Sometimes I feel like they dig themselves into a hole because then as somebody's listening, you just go, how does that make sense? Let's just leave it at all of this other stuff is not making sense. If you try to start creating a story when you don't really know what happened, then other people listening to it can go It can start getting people confused because to me, it doesn't make sense that he just that you just go get a piece of lumber and then come back and ice pick and all that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Or
1: maybe he did plan it and he was like, I'm going to get these tools. And then he was waiting for a fight when he kind of had the gumption to go
0: through Mm -hmm. with it. We don't know. I mean, to me, that makes more sense. But I guess. Who knows what really happened? Um, but that's just what they were there. I guess they felt like they needed to try to come up with some explanation Probably as to what happened in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They think that she hit him with a hairbrush. There must've been a hair. I'm assuming there's a hairbrush around there somewhere that looks maybe matched some sort of a abrasion or something on his head. And they think that Kimberly maybe came to the door um, and witnessed the fighting and that he, as he's hitting Colette with, a piece of wood while he was like maybe swinging. He accidentally possibly hit the girl. And then once he did that, she's injured. And then Colette's out, you know, he's knocked her out. And then he goes and figures he has to kind of kill his other two daughters because they're just going to be witnesses to what happened. And so it just escalated at that point. And he just staged this whole thing so they think after killing both of the girls, he wrapped Colette's body in a sheet and carried it c- because she, uh, they think that she went and like threw herself on top of one of the girls because her blood was found on Kristen's bed covers mm-hmm. and on one wall. So they think that possibly she like woke up, stumbled in, threw herself over the little girl and then he killed both of them, wrapped her body into a sheet and then carried it back into the master bedroom and left it, left her body there because there was a smudged footprint of her blood, like on the way out of Kristen's room. So it looks, you know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless he had to kind of get her back out of there and into the bedroom to sort of stage it all, right. you know. So then the investigators theorized that in order to and like in an attempt to cover up the murders, He used articles from the Manson family murders that he had found in an issue of Esquire because there was this magazine was in the living room that had the whole Manson family murders layout in it and everything that happened. And they think that he just used that and sort of, you know, that whole thing about the three guys and a girl, the hippies, the um, piggy, yeah all that stuff. Um, acid, you know, acid is groovy and all of that. So he put on surgical gloves and went into the master bedroom and used her blood to write pig and then laid his torn pajama top over her body and then stabbed her in the chest uh, with an ice pick. Now, I don't really know why he would have done it that way, but that's what he... Maybe to reduce blood. better? Yeah. It's just weird that he would use his own pajama top. I don't know. I I found that odd. And then... They think he, then they just kind of called an ambulance and laid down the, you know, beside her. So they did have an Article 32 hearing and they convened on July 5th, 1970, and it ran through September. He was represented by Bernard Segal, a civilian defense attorney from Philadelphia. And they concentrated on the poor quality of the CID investigation and the existence of other suspects, specifically a woman named Helena Stokely. So there was a woman who was a known drug addict in the area who sort of fit the description of this woman with the floppy hat. And she even wore, was known to wear those types of clothes. And they didn't really investigate that. They didn't really look into it very much because they just honed in on him because so often whenever there's whenever someone, a married person is murdered, so it's often it is yeah. the spouse. Yeah. So they just didn't, it was, there was so many, so much circumstantial evidence. It just didn't make sense. All this stuff didn't add up. They didn't really look anywhere else. And so that's the defense just sort of honed in on that. He, uh, his attorney presented evidence that they didn't properly, properly manage the crime scene and lost several items of critical evidence, including the four torn tips of rubber, rubber surgical gloves found in the master bedroom and a single layer of skin found under one of Colette's fingernails. And you have to remember this was back in 1970. So we didn't have DNA testing yet. That, w- that would come a couple of decades later. And so then in October 13, 1970, the army issued a report recommending that the charges be dismissed against McDonald because they quote, were not true. And he recommended that civilian authorities investigate Stokely, the woman. Mm-hmm. That So the army, basically they did their their investigation and they said, we don't think that it's true that he did this and we think you should they recommended the civilian investigators focus their attentions on this Helena Stokely person. And he. they gave him an honorable discharge from the Army. And then he returned to New York City. <sighs> <laughs> I know. So after this hearing, he went back to work as a doctor in New York City. And then he moved to Long Beach, California in 1971, where he was an emergency room physician at the St. Mary Medical Center. At that time, he made a media appearance. This is probably where he really messed up because he went on the Dick Cavett show. He kind of was like joking around and he complained about the investigation and how it focused on him as a suspect. And it just did not sit well with a lot of people, including his stepfather-in-law, Freddie Kassab. I think that's how you pronounce it. Not sure. (laughs) So, you know, it's just never going to sit well somebody someone who is if you can just imagine this someone going through something like this and then a couple of years later them going on the Ellen show or late night with Jimmy Fallon or something and kind of like being lackadaisical about it and just kind of also
1: your wife and children died I don't think you should ever be lackadaisical
0: about that right regardless of who murdered them (laughs) I mean Right. If if you didn't do it. Yeah. How can you be so flippant? And so just making jokes? Really? That's just so it just really turned a lot of people against him. And then when his stepfather in law, I guess it probably he kind of went, what if he did it? You know, he just started because he had been a really one of his, you know, one of his supporters up to this point. And he even testified in support of his innocence during the the Article 32 Mm -hmm. hearing. But then after he appeared on that show he started really thinking about it mcdonald refused to provide him with a transcript of the article 32 hearing so i guess that was probably a closed hearing so the public didn't have access to the to the transcripts and i guess he had control over whether or not his father his stepfather in law was able to read the transcripts and he didn't want him to have it so he he wouldn't give him A copy of it. And I think that made him suspicious. Like, what are you trying to hide? Right. What are you trying to hide? So, also, McDonald made some contradictory and kind of crazy claims. In one instance, he told his stepfather in law that he and some army friends, this is so weird, that he tracked down, tortured, and eventually murdered one of the alleged killers of his family. So, he says that he figured out. The people that did it, and he, or at least one of the people, and then he tracked that person down. He and another, like ar- some army buddies, tracked them down, tortured them, I guess, to try to get a, a confession out of them, and then eventually killed them. And later on, after the stepfather always like, that's the crazy story, and then starts telling this story, then Jeffrey says, Oh, well, I just told him that just to get him off my back because <laughs> he wouldn't. Let it go. To not attract attention. <laughs> just, I mean, for somebody who is a surgeon, who went to medical school, who went to Princeton, what part of that makes any sense? That just doesn't make any sense to me. You're going to tell your father-in-law that you went and murdered someone? It's like, No, I didn't murder that other pe- person.
1: Because I, urder- I murdered these people. Right. I, <laughs> I took I care mean, of it. It's fine. I just, no, one else, no, no one needs to look further. Don't look, don't look under the rug. Yeah,
0: don't look anymore. I already took care of it. I went and killed him for you. Don't worry. The, pr- the person that murdered your stepdaughter, they're they're good. They're gone. I took care of it. Don't worry. So he wants him to stop looking into it. Just crazy. So he, Freddie Kasab finally was able to receive a copy of the hearing transcript transcript. And he saw where there were numerous inconsistencies in McDonald's testimony. So for instance, he asserted that he had sustained near life-threatening injuries during the alleged assault on him. And he says that when he went to the hospital, less than 18 hours after the attack, he found him sitting up in bed eating a meal and could barely even see any bandages. For For someone whose wife and daughters were stabbed repeatedly and bludgeoned, he he didn't, to look at him 18 hours later, you really couldn't tell there was anything wrong with him. So his, you know, like his father-in-law is just going, hmm, this is just getting worse and worse, and I'm just not believing him anymore. In a, a March of 1971, in company with army investigators, Kasab visited the crime scene for several hours in order to test the physical evidence against Mac- McDonald's testimony. So this, her, her stepfather-in-law is looking at this like nobody's going to give her justice if I don't, which I think, I, I think it's just amazing that he, he did not want those murders to just be swept under the rug and to the side and for, for their killer to go free. So he just, he would he was relentless. And he's
1: a stepdad. Um, Props to all the stepdads the there. Stepdad. He's like,
0: mm-hmm. I mean, that's her dad. It's just dad. Yeah. You don't even have to say stepdad. Yeah, that's her dad. At this point, he's, he's proven if, if himself. You're he, your your murderer. <laughs> dad that's just dad and he convinced the investigators that mcdonald actually that he was convinced and i think he convinced the 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 convinced the investigators that mcdonald had actually committed the crime you know once they kind of really started looking into it and looking at all of the evidence and just kind of going back over it it's like maybe at first you know, he didn't want to believe. And if everything that I read, like every account that I read, everyone that knew him before this happened said that he was not the kind of person that you would ever think would do something like this. He, he nobody, nobody believed. And in fact, there was a, psych, a psychological profile that was done on him that he wanted to have, his uh, attorneys wanted to have put in as evidence in his trial because it said that his personality type would never, be one that would would do something like that. And the judge didn't allow it to go in. But by all accounts, he did not seem like the type of person that his just, and there didn't seem to be any problems in the marriage. So it was just, it just didn't make sense. So you can imagine his father and father-in-law and, you know, the, the father and mother of his wife probably just thought the world of him, you know, they, it, they seem like the perfect family. So, I'm sure they wanted to believe him. They didn't they would have never wanted to believe that he would do something like that. I don't that.
1: think anyone wants to believe that about their family. Mm-hmm. Um but this when they reopen the investigation, I'm just wondering kind of knowing a little bit about how the military works that he has been discharged at this point, maybe now they're more willing to look at it with a critical eye because he's no longer in the unit. He's no I mean he's no longer in the military. Of course, the investigation is not being done by that unit, but He's no longer actively in there. That unit is not saying, hey, don't make our unit look bad. That commander's not kind of talking to some people in the IG, the in, like the investigator's office. I, I mean, I'm just speculating that maybe with that passing you know, time and him being discharged had an impact of them being able to be a little bit more objective or
0: impartial. That's exactly right. And it said um, and it does say that the her stepfather filed a citizen's complaint in early 1972, trying to get justice for her. But it was held in limbo because the murders happened when he was serving in the army. But he's at the, by this time, he was no longer in the army. So the citizen's complaint was, con- was declared moot. But um, a grand jury finally, in just a civilian trial in North Carolina, indicted him on January 24th, 1975. And within the hour, he was arrested in California. So he was free on bond, $100,000 bond in May, just a few months later. Um, He was arraigned and pleaded not guilty to the murders. And then on July 29th, 1975, Judge Dupree denied, he tried to get a a double jeopardy appeal, I guess. And probably using the wrong word there, but, um, and also, so they used an argument, the speedy trial argument and the double jeopardy Mm -hmm. argument to try to get it thrown out. And the judge said, no. It doesn't count, <laughs> just like what you said. Yeah. He said, you can be tried. That was in the Army. This is civilian, 100%. We can do it, and we will. And so they did. The murder trial began on July 16, 1979, in federal, uh, the federal courthouse in Raleigh, North Carolina. And his lawyers were Bernard Seagal and Wade Smith. And since they were pretty confident of a con- of an acquittal, I would imagine they would be confident because it's already gone through one trial, right. the military, which you've said those... Uh, very thorough, very strict, and even has even more strict or more ability to convict someone, or I don't know, seems a little bit like scary, (laughs) you know, as far as your rights go.
1: You'd lose a little bit of rights in the military there. They have some, they have some different things that they can do, but I don't know, really, really know where I'm going with this, but it's Sometimes civilian courts are a little bit nicer. Um, mm-hmm.
0: the, the that's how it felt. That's kind of like as I was reading, you know, different ones. I was like, it seems like the military trials are more, not that they don't care about your rights as much, but it's just like the army owns your you life. Ha- I your- don't know. That yeah, that's yeah. how it feels. They can it's tarnish like- your
1: record a little bit more. They take away your pay. Um, yeah, they can inflict a little bit harsher sentences. And I know n- really not too much about. Army law. I'm not an attorney, other than just being terrified when I was in of getting in trouble. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, it seems like a little bit of a scary position to be in. And now he's going through the civilian trial, and he's ha- you know he's having to start this whole thing all over again. And his his uh, attorneys, I guess, are just thinking, well, if we made it through the military trial, surely we can get through get him through this one, and and we'll get an acquittal. So, like I said, they before they tried to get. The psychiatric testimony put in, but they were not able to do that. You know, just just saying that he his personality type was. Not able to kill his family due to his personality type, and they he he didn't allow uh, Judge Dupree didn't allow that. So the pro- as far as from the pos- prosecution side during the first day of the trial, the judge allowed the prosecution to admit into evidence the copy of Esquire magazine that was in McDonald's house. <laughs> yeah, and so that had to be particularly damning to him. I mean. When I first read that, I was like, who would be so unlucky? Yeah. <laughs> has to have that magazine. And then also, this same thing clear across the entire United States happened. That's just it's a little far fetched to me, but that's his story and he was sticking to it. <laughs> so he did allow that to come in. And so they introduced the magazine to suggest that that's where he got the idea, of blaming the hippie gang for the murders. They called in a lab technician who testified that the pajama top had 48 small, smooth, and uh, cylindrical ice pick holes through it. And in order for that to have happened, it would have had to remain stationary, which is unlikely if he had it wrapped around his hands to defend himself from the blows of an attacker. So what they did is the prosecutors had two different people on their team, stage an impromptu re- reenactment of the attack, and so one of them wrapped a pajama top around his hands and tried to fend off the ser- uh, a series of blows from the other one with a similar ice pick. And the prosecution made two points with the demonstration: first, the ice pick holes in the pajama top were jagged and torn, not smooth and cylindrical like the ones on McDonald's actual pajama top, and then also one of the guys that that was trying to fend off the blows had a small wound on his left hand. So he actually got injured. And when McDonald had been examined at the hospital, he didn't have any defensive wounds on his Mm -hmm. arms or hands. So it's like he was saying that that pajama top just completely 100% protected him from that ice pick, you know, even if it helped a little bit. Kevlar pajamas. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. So it was really damaging to the defense because it just sort of like set the stage for that. And it, it just made, you could just imagine the jury, you know, if you were on the jury, I've been on jury duty a couple of times and I can imagine that just being, for one thing, testimony, a lot of times in trials, are, it can be so boring because it's just person after person getting up there and they go, they don't always spell out what they're trying to explain. They expect the jury to be sitting up and paying attention and know where they're going. And so sometimes you it's hard to tell and you're just kind of sitting there in a daze going, where? What is all of it? It's just a bunch of talking. So I can imagine if somebody's getting up there reenacting something like this, that's going to stick out in the minds of the jurors big time. So I'd imagine it made a big impact um, whenever, you know, later on there, when they were deliberating. Also, another piece of damaging evidence against his case was a tape that of an interview that was done by military investigators. So they got to hear this tape and he is kind of telling the story of what happened and he's using this really sort of matter-of-fact, indifferent tone.
1: Mm.
0: And then also he became very so he's he's telling the story and he's just kind of like and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. You know, it's just kind of like da 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 da. da. But then whenever they acu- are kind of accusing him of committing the murders. He gets angry, defensive, and very emotional. So it doesn't play well for him at all because you can just imagine the jury sitting there going, well, you weren't emotional or angry at all. when you're telling what these horrible people oh, supposedly you did to your family. Now you're angry. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine trying to retell that story? You would be upset, emotional, furious, you know, just trying to relive all of that. But no, he didn't get mad until they accused him of being the one to do it, and that jury got to hear this interview. And then at the end, so the investigators confronted him about him having extra extra affairs. And at the end of the inv- inv- like a, the interview, you hear him say, "Oh, you guys are more thorough than I thought." So <laughs> it's just, <laughs> oh yeah, caught me. <laughs> I know it's just kind of like you can just imagine how damaging that would be. Yeah. So they didn't they had all this evidence but they didn't really have a motive for him committing the murders he didn't have a history of violence didn't have a history of domestic abuse with his wife or children and the judge refused uh, their request for an, a psychiatric evaluation to be done and he refused for the prosecution the prosecution's request to allow an evidence from the transcripts from the article 32 mm-hmm. hearing the judge did not allow the transcripts in because he said that in that trial, the military investigators had made claims that he may have murdered his family in a in a drug induced rage, and he felt like that would be too. If he, I guess, if he let any part of it in, he have to let all of it in, and he felt like that would be too damaging. Yeah, um, because it was just speculation, yeah, and hearsay. Really, the prosecution that was their whole case. They just kind of had all the circumstantial evidence. They didn't really have a good, clear motive for it. But the defense, so as far as what the defense put on for their part, they called Helena Stokely, the the woman the with the floppy lady. hat, the hat lady. They thought they were they called her to the to the stand, thinking that they're going to get a confession out of her. But she obviously did not confess. But supposedly she did at some point, not on the stand, but at some point in the past, she had confessed to more than one p- person, and so they just. I guess we're just banking on the fact that they were going to be able to get her to to confess on the stand in a Perry Mason moment, but (laughs) (laughs) it did not happen. And so that obviously didn't help their defense, just having her on the stand. And then they called a forensic expert to the stand and he tried to... Rebut the the government's contention that the pajama top was stationary. So as that you know they're like oh it had to have been stationary in order for the cuts to be made the way they were. So their their forensic person tried to kind of rebut that, but it didn't go over so well. It's kind of like one of those things where you could see right through it. Like this is just a paid expert that you know good try, but nobody's buying it kind of thing. And then they just called a few character witnesses that basically said. There's no way he could have done this. He's just an awesome person. Nobody would have ever believed he would do this. And that was his defense. So he didn't really have a strong defense, although supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And so then August 29, 1979, he was convicted of one count of first degree murder on the death of Kristen and two counts of second degree murder in the deaths of Colette and Kimberly. And they deliberated for just over six hours, which I thought was pretty short considering yeah, it, pretty cool. it. Yeah. All of the evidence and stuff for them to go through. But they gave him, the judge gave him a life sentence for each of the murders to be served consecutively. And then he filed several appeals, which were refused and then there was a movie, of course, in 1979. McDonald invited author Joe McGinnis to write a book about the case. And McGinnis was given full access to him and the defense during the trial. And so <laughs> he thinks, of course, that he's going to portray him as being innocent because he's thinking, oh, I'll, because the, the guy acts like he believes him. The author acts like he sure. is on his side. Yeah, because he wants not mm-hmm. worry. Right. So he thought the book would be about his innocence of the murders and and that it would be you know portrayed that way. However, when it was published, it portrayed him as a narcissistic sociopath um, who was guilty of killing his family and plot twist. <laughs> yeah. So he um, ended up suing the author in 1987 for fraud, claiming that he pretended to believe him innocent after he came to the conclusion that he was guilty and ordered. So he basically said, well, you know, once you figured out or once you decided in your own mind that I was guilty, you should have said something instead of continuing on and pretending like you believed me just so you could make money off the book. And so after they had a trial that uh, resulted in a mistrial And then they just ended up settling out of court for $325,000.
1: Considering he got a movie out of it, that's nothing.
0: I know. I mean, the fact that mcdonald got $325,000. Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel like he should have gotten any money. No, I don't
1: think so either. But I'm saying like the author.
0: Oh, yeah. He got the movie out of it as well. So he's, yeah, he's in in good shape. He didn't really lose that much money on it. (laughs) Mm -mm. And, oh, the DNA testing. So, you know, I said when all this happened, they didn't have DNA testing. Well, Um, On September 2nd, 1997, the district court granted his motion to file a supplemental affidavit. Lawyers representing him were given the right to pursue DNA tests on limited hair and blood evidence. Um, So on October 17th, 1997, they began testing and they hoped that the results would tie Stokely and her and, and apparently her as, quote associate Greg Mitchell to the scene of the crime, but their DNA uh, results released by the Armed Forces DNA Identification Lab, um, on March tenth, two thousand six. Now, why in the world it took that long, I don't know, but showed neither Stokely nor Mitchell's DNA matched any of the test exhibits tested exhibits. A limb hair found stuck to Colette's left palm matched mcdonald's dna profile it also matched hairs found on the bedspread from the master bed and on the top sheet of Kristen's bed and a hair found on colette's um right palm was sourced as her own and then three hairs one from the bed sheet and one found in her body outline in the area of her legs and one found beneath Kristen's fingernail did not match the dna profile of mcdonald family member of any of the mcdonald family members Hmm. Or known suspect. So that was like, I mean, hairs can come from all over the place and get, and end up in weird places. So who yeah. knows? But Maybe they just had a visitor that mm-hmm. they washed clothes with someone. Right. So he, he ended up going through several different appeals. He continues to file appeals. And they continue to be denied. He got married um, in August 2002. McDonald married Catherine Courage. She's a teacher who operates a drama school for children in Howard County, Maryland. They had <laughs> met. Uh, I know. It says they met briefly. So you do a in, play on him. I know. It's so weird. Uh, I guess they met briefly in Baltimore, but they reconnected in 1997 when she wrote to him asking how she could help with his legal case. Hmm. Weirdo. <laughs> why do? Why? There's uh, somebody okay. for everybody. I guess. <laughs> I guess. So they developed a friendship and. Eventually that developed into a romantic relationship. And then they got married while he was incarcerated at a federal prison in California. And after their marriage, he was transferred to the Federal Correction Correctional Institute at Cumberland, Maryland, which is closer to where she lives. So as far as his parole goes, she's she's really been kind of his, you know, supporter and to try to get his parole. He applied for a parole hearing. It was held on May tenth, two thousand five. It was immediately denied. His next scheduled parole hearing will be May of twenty twenty. So he's got a couple of years to go. And that is the story of Jeffrey McDonald. And there is actually the, a whole thing on the internet about how he's like included in some of these. You know how these lists of people who quote may be innocent who were convicted. Yeah, there are a lot of people who think he's innocent. That that really think that the whole way that everything was presented was so slanted that he was never given a chance to be for it to even cons- anyone to even consider he could have been just because of the way it was presented, I guess. Um, and he kind of did himself in with that interview that he did when he went on the Dick Cavett show.
1: You know, there's always a chance that he's innocent. There was no like conclusive DNA evidence that he did it, I suppose. But he didn't help himself out. No. In several, several instances. He had that whole crazy hippie story. Right.
0: You know. There's so many things to the story that just don't make sense. Like, if he was truly innocent, why in the world would he lie to his father-in-law and say that he tracked down her killer and killed him? Why would you do that? That makes no sense whatsoever. I don't know. That in and of itself, to me, is almost just proof. Like, it just, just does not make, there's no way to make that make sense. So but that is his story. And I think it's crazy. It is crazy. But that's a good story. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. It's been done by a few people, but I never tire of hearing of it ever hearing. hearing? If I find a podcast that has it on there, I'm like, Oh, yep, I want to hear. I want to hear their version. Because it seems like there's always a new slant. There's always something or a new perspective. Or what does this person think? Or, you know, I don't know, well,
1: especially because we are kind of not sure. We mm-hmm. think we know, but there's a little bit of that question. It's not like Jeffrey Dahmer. We know what he did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, like this one, another Jeffrey, you know, <laughs> it's, well, did he, didn't he? There's mm-hmm. a lot of room for interpretation here. So I think retelling this story, there's there's always some value in it and it, there's always some just interest in hearing it again. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was a good one to do.
0: So now we get the good story, thank goodness. I always like ending on the good story because it get some of those stories get so dark and the details are just so gory. I hate just ending on that. Like I'm the type of person that if I watch a scary movie, I'll watch a little sitcom or something afterwards <laughs> so that I can go to bed and actually sleep.
1: Yeah, I think we should uh, end with a, a good one and yeah. a good military story which mm-hmm. the end of the story was actually around the same time that Jeffrey McDonald was up to his shenanigans. Really? Yeah. So this story is, it's a good nurse, but kind of a bad nurse, because I think it's a bad (laughs) nurse. (laughs) (laughs) So this is about Brigadier General, who we just called General, Mm -hmm. Anna Mae Hayes. She is the first female to ever achieve the rank of general in the U.S. military. Now, I will say there was another female who was who was pinned like immediately after her but uh general hayes was actually just pinned first so she Mm -hmm. gets the distinction of being first so i don't i will mention that that female's name at the end and you'll notice i keep saying female as opposed to woman or something else because when you're in the military that's the word for it so ah interesting yeah so we refer to females as females and you know i don't say boy or guy you say male it's just the proper terminology. So just like in medicine, we have our proper terms. The military has their proper terms. So Anna Mae Hayes was actually born Anna Mae McCabe in Buffalo, New York in 1920.
0: Another New York story too. And
1: then very quickly moved to Allentown, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Uh, She graduated from Allentown, Pennsylvania with honors and then started nursing school at Allentown General Hospital in 1938. I don't know when she graduated. It was a little unclear. but I think 1940 It was one of those hospital nursing programs, but she got her RN and then she joined the American Red Cross following graduation. And then as everyone knows, Pearl Harbor happened Mm. in December 1941. And that following May of 1942, she joined the Army Nurse Corps. So the Army Nurse Corps was a little bit separated from the regular army, just like the Women's Auxiliary Corps was a separate branch of the Army. They, women were not actually integrated within the Army at this time. So she said that after reading papers about citizens serving the country, she knew she could do the same as a nurse and she wanted to help out. And again, men were being drafted for World War II, but all of the nurses, they were volunteers because they were women. They, didn't have, they were not drafted. So she entered as the rank of second lieutenant, which is the lowest officer rank. Her first Deployment and her only her deployment for the duration of World War II was to Lido Assam, India, in January of 1943, with the 20th General Hospital, where she worked as an OR nurse. Lido Assam, India, is a thousand miles north of Calcutta, and it was at the entrance of the famous Lido Road through the jungles into Burma, which is now Myanmar. The soldiers were building a route to China so that they could attack the Japanese. She lived in an austere environment with bamboo buildings. There's lots of uh, monsoons, dysentery, and snakes. And I hate snakes. And if anyone has listened to my podcast, I tell an entire story about how much I hate snakes. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) It's a good one, too. (laughs) Um, She spent the remainder of World War II there, which was two and a half years. During that two and a half years, the hospital cared for... 49,000 patients, and they, they were very sick. Wow. She decided to stay on active duty and was promoted to first lieutenant in April of 1945. She went to Tilton Hospital in Fort Dix, New Jersey, where she worked 12 hour OR shifts six days a week as a head nurse. Then she was promoted to head nurse of multiple medical and surgical units. She got promoted very, very quickly to captain in December of 1947. She was then sent to Valley Forge Hospital in Pennsylvania as the obstetrics supervisor. She studied premature infants at the University of Pennsylvania and was sent to start, she was set to start a course at Columbia University to get her BSN, but the Korean- war broke out. Wow. Yeah. So this will be her second war. Good grief. Yeah. (laughs) She's done a lot already. Yeah. Yeah. And she's like in her 20s. So Captain Hayes at this point. And by the way, she got married and then her husband, I believe, died in... uh, She went from McCabe to Hayes. I think her husband died in 1962. So she was married only briefly. Oh. So she deployed to Korea with the 4th Field Hospital. She participated in Incheon Landing, which was a huge turning point in the Korean War for the Allied soldiers. Um, And then they started to march on Seoul and kind of retake parts of Korea. She has a quote here that says, We were always extremely busy, both in Incheon area and later, when we had to hurriedly evacuate in February of 1951 to Daegu at the time. Chinese and North Koreans almost reached the Incheon area. I can remember traveling south from Incheon area to Taegu by train in the middle of the night, not knowing when the railroad trestle over which we traveled would be blown up. Mm, How scary. Wow. Yeah. So from September of 1950 to July of 1951, her field hospital treated 25,000 patients. One night alone, they saw 700 patients. Good
0: grief. It's just, yeah, the numbers worked- are staggering. I can't get my mind around that, how they yeah, even managed that.
1: And Korea was notorious for having not enough supplies, not enough soldiers. It was very hard to get to. It was very, very cold. And this, she would say that this was a much harder deployment than World War II. The OR was constantly busy. It was freezing, limited su- supplies, It was very difficult. However, she did note that there were several medical advancements since World War II, including the advent of antibiotics, availability of whole blood, and rapid medical evacuation with helicopters that did not exist. Mm. So there was much better patient outcomes. So after Korea in May of 1956, she became the head ER nurse of Walter Reed Medical Center. In Washington DC which is where I am at now mm. she was selected as one of three private nurses to care for President Eisenhower when he was there in June of 1953 so this is like just after she gets there a month <laughs> later they're like you're going to care for President Eisenhower wow <laughs> it's crazy yeah and he was hospitalized for 23 days for an ileitis attack and they became close friends up until he died in 1969 <sighs> They became buds. (laughs) What? Yeah. And she's just so cool. I want to be friends with her. And in 1957, she returned to Columbia to obtain her BSN in nursing education. She's like, all right, guys, sorry. You had to wait. There was a war, but I'm back. (laughs) Let's do this. In 1962, she completed the U.S. Army Management School. She was the first of two nurses to do so. So nurses prior to this point had never been allowed to attend Non nursing army education courses. So, big army, the rest of the army was off limits as far as education courses to nurses. Hmm. So, this was a big deal that she could go outside the medical corps and get training, especially in management and leadership. In 1963, she was promoted to lieutenant colonel, which again is another big deal because most nurses retired at the rank of major. And she was assigned to the office of the chief of the army nurse corps under. Colonel Margaret Harper. In June of 1963, she became the assistant chief and she had a lot of projects. One of her projects was the mandatory issuance of uniforms to nurses. So this is the beginning of Vietnam. Nurses are getting deployed over there and they're not all getting army
0: uniforms. What in the world so are they wearing? I guess just their...
1: Their civilian clothes. Oh. Yeah. Which <laughs> is crazy. Yeah. They're- so this is just really how the army was viewing nurses as not Part of the army, you know. Oh, the the nurse corps is separate. They're women. Oh, they're not really a priority. Wow. And she's like, no, no, no. we we want to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. We, we deserve are deserve to be you,
0: taken seriously. We mm-hmm. deserve to be
1: taken seriously. We are you guys. We're going to look like you guys, and you're gonna you're gonna do it. And so in 1965, she this was her first of three trips to Vietnam. She went there with Colonel Mildred Clark, who was the 16th uh, chief nurse and the army was short two thousand nurses to help in vietnam obviously everyone knows that vietnam is insanely bloody there was a lot of casualties and the more and more the war dragged on the harder it was to get nurses and just like world war ii there was a draft men had to go but women did not so the women that served as nurses in vietnam they volunteered Even with all of the negative things being said in the papers about soldiers going over there, these women signed up. They said, nope, I need to care for our service members. I'm going to go. And there are several hundred women that are nurses that died in Vietnam. And just a little bit of a sidebar. There is a nurses memorial um, at the Vietnam Memorial. Mm -hmm. And it is dedicated to the Vietnam nurses. And it's really beautiful. It is – if you look at the Vietnam Memorial – I love looking at all the monuments here in DC because you can see how they kind of represent what they're actually memorializing. You know, you walk through the Vietnam Memorial, it starts you know really small, and as the war progresses, the names get bigger and bigger, and you kind of come out of it, and there's fewer and fewer names on the wall. But just off to the side, kind of in a clearing, almost like a field hospital would be off to the side, these nurses are kind of like looking up, to, one's looking up to the sky, another one's pulling security, another one is comforting a wounded soldier. Um, these ladies are really tough. They're strong and they're like down to business and they're just there um, looking over the memorial. Ugh. It's really cool. If you ever get to D.C., uh, go and see the women's memorial. Oh, I'm going to go see it now. The nurses one. It's it's awesome. I actually have a picture of it. I can have you guys post it on oh, Facebook. Oh, yes, definitely. There, I have like a tourist in the background of it, so just we'll ignore the tourist, but it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways, so, because of this shortage of nurses, she's like, All right, we need to train nurses. We need good nurses going over there. They helped establish and train ner- more nurses at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Nursing, RAIN program. So, her and Colonel Clark, Mildred Clark, uh, developed that program. Hmm. In July of 1967, she was promoted to a full bird, which is a full colonel, by the Surgeon General. Lieutenant General um, Heating. In September of 1967, she became the 13th chief of the U.S. Army Nurse Corps, which she held until her retirement four years later. In August of 1967, she graduated with her MSN from Catholic University in D.C. with services in nursing service administration. So, she went to Vietnam three times total to oversee the deployed nurses and the care of nursing to injured service members. During Vietnam, 40% of the nurses on active duty were deployed at any given time, which meant that there were fewer nurses back in the States to advocate for nursing as a profession in the army Mm -hmm. and to kind of say, hey, we're here, we need to be taken seriously, you know, and having a face. So she very strategically placed nurses in highly visible, highly trained positions so that higher-ups in the government and higher-ups in the military would recognize nurses as being important to military service and the government. For example, the first female social aid, military aid to the White House was an Army nurse. She also placed more nurses as instructors for enlisted courses and training. So, uh, bachelor- RNs are officers, but there's LPNs who are enlisted and then medics are enlisted I was a medic in the army mm-hmm. so I was enlisted and Colonel Hayes decided that nurses should be the ones running these running courses for training for certain medical providers in the army. She also increased the number of courses required to meet the nursing standard which is wonderful but as someone that had been in the army I know I'd be like oh my god more training. <laughs> sounds terrible. Great for the profession, terrible for the soldiers. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you always want to you always want to train more. She also – she oversaw the creation of many graduate-level programs, like degree programs, including the first Army-sponsored CRNA program that was developed at the University of Hawaii, which I thought was really cool.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah. So this next part, I was reading this last week, and I started to get kind of teary-eyed because there's so many things that were really backwards in um, the military as far as the treatment of women – that I just didn't realize how recently this was. And Colonel Hayes at the time made a lot of strides to change things for women in the military. So she, through her work, in January of 1970, a army law was reversed that... Women would no longer be automatically discharged after they became pregnant. Married officers
0: were not. So, uh, yeah. some of the, goodness. Sometimes when I, we're talking about some of these stories, I get so and just absolutely enraged because I'm just thinking, how in the world? Oh yeah, just it's just unbelievable. It's crazy. Well, I
1: think the idea is that. And I'm not defending this at all that, oh, you can't do your job because you should be looking after your family Mm -hmm. or it's not the best for your child or, you know, it is is the army. You should be able to be deployable and serving. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're pregnant and you're going to be taking care of a child and then maybe you can't do that. It's still the option that you can get out of the military if you get pregnant. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, that is an option. It can be your choice. But it's your choice. They're not like, oh, you're knocked up.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe
0: you maybe you want to be deployed and your husband wants to be the one to stay home with the child.
1: Oh, yeah. And I have friends that are female so- soldiers and their husbands have stayed home when on their deployments. And some of their <laughs> – my boyfriend is actually pointing to himself as being like, yeah, I'd stay it's home. It's like, I'll volunteer.
0: <laughs> it's like, you go deploy this time. <laughs> I did that. I'll stay home with the kids, hon. <laughs>
1: like, I got the dog. That's great. <laughs> And the caps. <laughs> yeah. And some couples, they're both in and one deploys and is home of the kids and then the other one deploys, especially with these current wars where they've been going on for so long, they kind of just swap on and off. Yeah. And But this is 1970. And actually, I, I skipped over one part. In 1967, in November, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed public law 90-130 with Colonel Hayes in attendance at the White House. And this law, allowed females to obtain the rank of general for the first time. So she is a colonel, which is the rank just below general officers. There's four ranks of of general officers, brigadier general, lieutenant general, major general, and then actual general, Mm -hmm. which is the four-star general. Um, Women could not obtain that rank. Like, doesn't matter how good you were, you just couldn't get promoted to general until President Johnson signed that law in 1967. So Colonel Hayes, being a colonel, that was the highest she could have gone. And it's that's not that long ago.
0: You know, I'm so thankful for there being men over the, the past decades and years that were willing to stand up for women and say, this is wrong. Women should be able to do this. Women should be able to to do that. Because if it hadn't been for the men who were willing to be on our side, we would have never been able to make those, have those changes. So I'm thankful for people like President Johnson and other men who, who were willing to go, yeah, because that, and I talked about this in another episode, we, we get on the, we get on these little soap boxes every now and then we are women. So, um, and these issues come up when we start talking about some of these stories, it's just infuriating, but um, I don't want to forget that. There were a lot of brave men who were courageous in standing up for women because it wasn't a popular thing to do, and unfortunately, there are a lot of women who are not who don't want women to advance, which is horrifying and sad to me. Oh yeah, but. Yeah, I mean, there's
1: there's definitely men that were allies for women's rights, mm-hmm. just as much as there were men that were against mm-hmm. it, as much as there are women that were like, nope, my place is in the home and this is what I want to do. And hey, look, if that's what you want to do, yeah. cool. But just like, let me have the choice to run around with a gun. Yeah, <laughs> like, if that's what I want to do and let me do that and not get kicked out if I get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So props to President Johnson for signing that law. And then the other people that, You know, enacted these laws in the army to help with this these changes. You know, Colonel Hayes didn't sign these laws. She developed a presence in the military. She was graceful in her leadership. She was forceful, but she was also very well respected. And she proved that you can be in a position of leadership as a woman, be effective, and be very well respected. And I think them seeing someone like her said, okay, yeah, maybe we can, maybe you're right. We'll listen to you and change these laws. And, you know, it was a joint effort. You know, it wasn't one person. But she certainly was like, hey, this isn't right. You know, you need to, we need to change this. So there was also other laws that got changed at her urging or based on her work. She had a lot of influence on them in July of 1971. Policy AR-601-139 was removed, which was the restriction on the age of dependents of female nurses seeking appointment in the Army Reserve North- Nurse Corps. So basically, if I don't know what the age restrictions were, but I think like if your kids were too young and you were a nurse and you wanted to join the Army Reserve, you weren't allowed, you were barred from enlistment. When night. did that happen? July of 71. Okay. So they, they removed that. And- in the 70s, regulations were changed to allow commissary and post privileges for spouses of female service members. So up until that point, um, if for anyone that doesn't know, if you are married to a service member, you're allowed to go on post. People aren't just allowed to go on to a fort. You can't just walk on to Fort Bragg like I was talking about earlier. And you can go to the commissary, which is generally cheaper. There's, You can go on post and you can go to the gym and there's a lot of, Things that are on army bases that are benefits of being in the military, and your spouse gets a spouse card and you and an ID, and they can go on. Well, the spouses of female service members, if they were not in the military, they did not get those privileges until the 70s,
0: <laughs> but the spouses of male service members did. That's so that makes so, no sense. I can't, I don't know. I'm gonna stop trying to make yeah. sense of that, <laughs> just gonna stop.
1: Yeah. And if you, ex- if anyone sees, has seen the RBG movie, there was a lawsuit that Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, filed, where a female service member was not getting dependent pay for her husband, where all the male service members were getting dependent mm. pay for their wives. It's a, it's interesting. The law got changed. Oh, that's and that was so in the, cool. I think 60s I love and 70s. It. Yeah, that was the start of Justice Ginsburg. So. After all of this work, in June June 11th, uh, 1970, she was promoted to Brigadier General, which made her the first female general of the U.S. military. And then immediately behind her, at the same ceremony, General Elizabeth P. Hollingston, who was the director of the Women's Army Corps, was also promoted. So, Hayes, Hollingston... <laughs> Hayes a little bit first. that's how the military <laughs> yeah. works. but it's cool that she was a nurse. so we're gonna just play that's that. that's awesome. <laughs> so General Hayes remarked at the ceremony that she reflects on the dedicated selfless and often heroic efforts of army nurses throughout the world since 1901 in times of peace and war. That was her wow. Quote. So there were several responses to her promotion. Some of them not so congratulatory. Oh, wow. <laughs> you can imagine the military culture does not always like when women are doing more stuff yeah. there. Sometimes, I mean, I'm not saying all men, a lot of times people don't care. And they're like, yeah, whatever, <laughs> as long as you can prove yourself, yeah. it's great. But there's there's always going to be a couple of men that are like, eh, women don't belong. But uh, General Hayes got a Mrs. Fr- missive from Germany that was addressed to Mrs. Brigadier General Anna May Hayes, Chief of the Feminine Army Sanitary Corps. What? <laughs> yeah, that was oh. rude. Um, but I liked this quote. On one occasion, General William Westmoreland's wife, Kitsie, so General Westmoreland was one of the big generals for v- during Vietnam, and General Westmoreland actually pinned General Hayes uh, at her ceremony. General Westmoreland is a controversial character, (laughs) to say the least, but he pinned General Hayes, so good for Mm. him there. So his wife, Kitsie, remarked to General Hayes, I wish you would get married again. And when General Hayes inquired why, Kitsie Westmoreland responded, I want some man to learn what it's like to be married to a general. (laughs) So I thought that was cute. So she did a lot of work for nurses and just women in the service. And there was a long lasting impact. She retired after, I think, 13 months as a general in August of 1971. So BS prepared nurses rose from 11% to 42%. And I didn't get the timeframe on this. I think it was while she was there, but I'm not sure. Um, for Qualification to be an officer in the Army, you have to have a bachelor's degree, but for a long time, nurses were exempt from this because they were a needed job, and you could become an officer with an associate's RN, but you maxed out at the rank of captain, and so now that's changed. You have to have a BSN, but for a long time, they were grandfathered in, and so General Hayes was pushing to get more bachelor's prepared Mm -hmm. nurses. As officers, She was the driving force behind the creation of the Army Nursing Contemporary Practice Program, which ultimately led to the development of advanced practice roles like nurse practitioners, which is me, and uh, CRNAs and many other ones. She was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, which is above the silver sh- – believe above the silver star, which is a very high up. So that's wow. very cool. Yeah. So just some kind of things that have happened – To women in the military since then. So the first female general was 1970. Um, Women were not allowed in combat roles until January 2016. (laughs) It was signed into law by President Obama in December of 2015. And for anyone that's interested in the history of army nursing, military nursing, and just kind of women in the military, if you ever go to Arlington National Cemetery, there is an actual museum on women in the military and it's really, really good. It's phenomenal. And there's a big portion dedicated to military nurses because that's what we did for so long. And they have the original document where women are now allowed to serve in combat roles there. And I saw it and I actually like teared up (laughs) because I was in the army when this was signed. And it's it just kind of blows my mind that we could be trained to do the same thing, but, so I was trained as a medic, but I would never have been sent to a combat unit because I was a female. So I was trained for the same job, but couldn't go to certain units. Um, I don't know if you guys remember the airliner that a window blew out, like the engine blew up and that pilot landed the plane. It was like last year and it was very heroic. I think someone died, but this, pilot was a female she was actually a female navy fighter pilot and she was if you listen to the audio of this she's just like so calm cool and collected she saved like so many lives she just landed that plane it was incredible it was insane but she was a fighter pilot and they said nope you can't fly combat roles because you're a woman in the 90s and she has a (laughs) multi-million dollar play that she's just like nope can't can't go to combat with and so now finally in 2016, women are able to join infantry roles, they're able to do you know, combat fighter pilot roles, everything that we were never allowed to do. We still do not have any female Green Berets. We were talking about the Green yeah. Berets earlier, but we don't have any females. The first female rangers were only uh they only graduated in August of twenty fifteen, and that was Captain Shay Haver and Lieutenant Kristen. Gerst so uh, General Hayes did get to see those because she passed away in January 7th of this past year in 2018 so she got to see some pretty cool advancements
0: of females That's wonderful
1: and females and advancing. I know she
0: has yeah. to know that she was a um, important part of all of those advances happening
1: I think she was pretty humble and she probably would <laughs> not have uh, taken much credit for it but she definitely definitely mm-hmm. paved the way for people to, to to take it much further. And that's how yeah. it always
0: works. That's, that's I love that story. That's wonderful. That's such an empowering story and encouraging story. It- yeah, it is
1: empowering. And we, we see so many tough things as nurses, and we have to make some really mm-hmm. tough decisions. And every time I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know if I can do this. I'm like, no, the first female general was a nurse. Of course I can do this. I got to yeah, live up should- to
0: that, right? We're a tougher, we're yeah, a tough profession. Remember <laughs> some of the people that came before us and how what all they had to do. We can, we can do anything. We can absolutely <laughs> do it. Yeah. Well, my goodness, this has been a cram-packed podcast full of stuff. It's been really good. <laughs> it's a it's long. It's been podcast. fun. <laughs> And I guess it's time to wrap it up now. Um, I will say if you want to um, hear more of Christine's stories on her Antidotes podcast, you can find her. Christine, remind me um, of your Instagram, Facebook, all, all the ways that they can find you.
1: Yeah. So we're on Facebook at Antidotes Podcast, which is the same as our Instagram, Antidotes Podcast. You can tweet the podcast at Antidotes Pod or I am Christine the NP on Twitter as well, or just listen on iTunes,
0: Stitcher, whatever uh, antidote stories. And they're Edison. fun stories. Uh, some of them are uh, more lighthearted and funny. Some of them are more um, interesting and um, thought provoking. Um, so they're not all necessarily funny. So as, as what sometimes that happens when, you know, you get to talking about a story. Um, it's, it's kind of, it's, It kind of gets serious quickly, you know, with some of the some of the things that you you can talk about, you know, that's happened.
1: Yeah, sometimes this profession (laughs) gets a little serious. Yeah, (laughs) eh,
0: yeah, once or twice. So, and then of course, if you want to come on, go on to GNBN podcast on Instagram or Good Nurse, uh, Good Nurse Bad Nurse podcast. I can't ever remember; they're all different. I think GNBN podcast is the Twitter, actually, Um, and Good Nurse Bad Nurse is on um, we're on Facebook. Just uh tell us where you're from, tell us where you're listening. Um, I think I thought every every week I try to name a uh, shout out a new country that I saw. What did I see last time? Um I want to say United Arab Emirates is what I saw the last time. And I was like, Oh, that's amazing. Nice. So there's people, lots of people from um Australia and the UK and Canada. And of course, tons and tons of people from the United States. That's where we're from. But um, just want to say thank you so much for listening. And uh, just give us a shout out. And if you want to hear a a specific story, if there's something you know about, let us know. I may not even know about some of these. I have to sometimes scour the internet for hours looking for stories to do. So give us a heads up and let us know if there's something that you want us to tell. If you're um, in the medical field and you want to guest hosted episode, you can also send me an email at Samantina at good nurse bad nurse dot com and um we'll we can chat about that as well. So I guess we're gonna wrap it up and remember people, even if you're a bad girl or boy, be a good nurse. We'll see you next week. i okay. a